morning and welcome to Rising. We have a great show for you on this Tuesday morning. Hello, Brianna. Hello, Robbie. Let's get right into it. Let's There's do some it. pretty big news on the Epstein front. Has another one of Epstein's John Do John Epstein, excuse me, John Doe has been unmasked to be a former US president? Mm. An analysis from Insider finds with high probability that John Doe 174 named numerous times in legal documents connected to Epstein is in fact Donald J. Trump. According to unsealed documents, John Doe 174 is a well-known longtime associate of Epstein's, often appearing in his social circles, but not necessarily explicitly linked to any wrongdoing. One victim confirms she was not made to massage 174 at any of Epstein's properties. Now, after a new batch of documents were unsealed yesterday, some media outlets briefly latched on to previously reported and now retracted claims that Trump, along with Bill Clinton and Sir Richard Branson, were taped assaulting underage girls while traveling with Epstein. Now, this explosive accusation was made by accuser Sarah Ransom, who later admitted in her tell-all book that she had made that claim up as insurance. Ransom later maintained that, quote, Jeffrey kept a a trove of surveillance on every person who had ever visited his properties. All in all, neither Trump nor Clinton responded to outlets' requests for comment. Now, we all know that Trump is a little busy dealing with other legal matters. And as for Bill Clinton, well, he's on a Mexican getaway with none other than California Governor Gavin Newsom. Hope they're having a grand old time. Um, so this is interesting. So. You know, these are people who are named in the documents, mm -hmm. not uh, the vast majority of them not actually accused of in the documents of necessarily sexual misconduct. Um, the individual 174, if, if in fact that is Donald Trump, does not um, specify that he was accused of misconduct. Mm -hmm. And in fact, there is one accuser saying that she did not specific, she did not give him a massage, um, nothing of that sort. So really, it's just additional confirmation of uh, of the fact that Trump, like Bill Clinton, like other famous political figures and celebrities, were for sure associates of Epstein and um, and had traveled with him and knew him. And uh, people have to make of that what they will. Yeah, I mean, this is new, and then it isn't. Um, right. We already know that Trump's name came up several times during Jillian Maxwell's criminal sex trafficking trial. This is also from Business in Insider. In that trial, one of his Mar-a-Lago employees testified about an Epstein victim working at Mar-a-Lago. Flight records made public on that trial show Trump flew on Epstein's plane with his son, Eric. And one victim at the trial said Epstein name-dropped Trump, apparently to demonstrate he was connected to powerful people. So that's the thing about the Epstein mm -hmm. scandal. It is not really a partisan exercise. Absolutely so many not. people are implicated in it. But there is this interesting way that specifically the idea that liberals and Democrats are um, engaged in uh, child predatory behavior, whether it's through Pizzagate, QAnon, all these kinds of theories. It is interesting that it does seem to have this very specific partisan lens when the actual facts of these indictments and what people have been accused of and what these associations are, are so absolutely nonpartisan at all. It's a little bit like the lab leak theory discourse, mm -hmm. where for some reason the people obsessed with it ended up being conservatives and Republicans and like anti-establishment people like the viewers of our show, when, when the actual crux of the issue does not impugn one party more than the other um, is frankly what it what it reminds me of um, it is interesting the, the you know the de the aspect of this where what Branson and and uh, Trump and Clinton specifically accused 
by this woman who then recounted. Um, also, the woman, um, uh, uh, Virginia Gouffre, who had accused uh, Dershowitz, um, subsequently um, recounted. So, you know, what should we make of that kind of thing? I mean, there's two ways to see this. Yeah. One, that they were lying. You can take them at face value when this, um, this second um, victim says uh, she just wanted to have a backup plan, uh, insurance yeah. against these people. Or you can see it as folks who were bought off by very rich and powerful men who thought it wasn't worth going to through the emotional trial of a literal trial and the debates that happen around these accusations of sexual misconduct in the public sphere, and that they took a payoff. Many people reflect on what is true in that same context when they're talking about accusations that um, Ivana Trump once made against Donald Trump and the context of their divorce, which she later retracted as he was running for president. So there is an, an interesting question. How usual is it for so many people to have these allegations against you and then retract them? Well, maybe it is very usual for a rich person who could be extorted for money. Right. Maybe it's not especially usual for most rich people because there isn't an underlying seat of bad conduct. We honestly can't tell at this point. Yeah, it's it's hard to tell, but it is it is interesting. Um, uh, it's worth noting that um, Doe 174, prospectively, potentially Trump, his name came up in nine different documents that were previously under seal um, with this uh, most recent unsealing. And as of Monday night, so as of last night, three of those documents had not been completely unredacted. So there might be more information and more kind of context about Trump's involvement well, to come out soon. Yeah, speaking of that, here's my question. Who has these tapes? Who has these mm. surveillance tapes? Were those seized? Are those the FBI's property? Um, that seems highly relevant for, for settling some of these um, accusations that have been made and then withdrawn, or wondering who these other people are. Or, you know, we don't have to rely on, or the authorities don't have to rely on the testimony of witnesses. Um, if there's tapes, yeah. there's tapes, that would be pretty, um, that would be much more objective evidence, and uh, it would help clarify some of these matters. Not, I mean, not that the tapes should be publicly shown or something, but right. they should be part of a, of, a, of a criminal proceeding, you know, properly contextualize only, you know, the the jury or whatever seeing yeah. them, but um, but but then we would know uh, who else deserves to go down for this, and that would answer a lot of questions. So I wonder who has those tapes and why we don't hear anything about them. Right, and if the alleged victims can tell us something about where the tapes were found and where they were recorded, if the tapes then are missing, if they're no longer in police custody, I think that is very revealing in and of itself as well. If you can prove the initial existence of the tapes, even if you cannot find them now, that is incredibly damning because, look, the whole reason why this is so such a conspiracy-laden um, controversy is because so many, so many rich and powerful people, the most rich and powerful people on the entire globe are allegedly implicated. That is why when you see someone like Epstein in jail, who is in a position to now talk about who else was involved in, every, in, in order to use that leverage to potentially bring down his own sentence, that is why people are so skeptical about him sure. actually having killed himself. The, the ratio of, um, you know, kind of the ability to hurt other people with your testimony versus the value of your own life is so, was so out of skew that I think that that's largely what's driving people's disbelief. One, that Epstein killed himself, and two, that we're ever going to find any hard evidence on all of these enormously rich and powerful people that, frankly, have the ability and power to make a lot of inconvenient information disappear. Right now, the only person in prison, um, Jelaine Maxwell, whom Trump said 
I was I was reminded of that in this Business Insider article about uh, John Doe 174 that he said. Um, I mean, he said a bunch of negative things about obviously the disgusting crime she's accused and convicted of, and then um, I wish her well. <laughs> what a minch! <laughs> All right, stick around. We have more rising right after this. Without light, there's no path from this darkness. That's all right. 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 That was footage from a speech President Biden gave at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina yesterday. The historically black church in sight of Dylan Roos' racist 2015 massacre served as a staging ground for the president to try to rally voters in the state ahead of the 2024 election. Now, MSNBC host and former Biden aide Simone Sanders lashed out at protesters at the church, saying Mother Emanuel AME is hallowed ground in the AME church community. In Charleston especially, the shock of people in the crowd at protesters yelling out while President Biden was speaking from the pulpit cannot be overstated. I, too, couldn't believe it. The president's poll numbers continue to stay stagnant. A new AP poll suggests that many Democratic voters would be unsatisfied if Biden were nominated as the Democratic candidate for president, while more independent voters would be dissatisfied if Biden were nominated than Trump. Mm. Well, the polling hits keep coming. Future majority reports Trump is up six points in crucial swing state Pennsylvania, while Rasmussen reports shows large swaths of voters, nearly two-thirds of voters, see the crisis at the southern border as an invasion, a critical failure point for Biden as immigration continues to rank very highly as an important issue for voters. Here to discuss Biden's re-election chances and polling data is host of the Savvy Saps podcast, Sabrina Salvati. Welcome back, Sabrina. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me on. Always great to see you. Um, first, why don't you address this dust up at the church and the complaints from some people like Simone Sanders that this was inappropriate given the setting? The nerve of Joe Biden to appear at a black church after he has reneged on the promises that he made to the black community when he ran for president in 2020. He has some gall. Uh, this just goes to show you, if you look at the protesters that were in the audience of that church, those were younger voters. It shows you that once again, Joe Biden has not found a way to connect with young voters in this country. Most of the people in that audience are older voters, which is what you would expect if you go to a lot of the black churches uh, predominantly in the South. But we can't be mistaken. Jim Clyburn is sitting there right next to Joe Biden, uh, almost as a sidekick, so to speak. And Jim Clyburn bears the responsibility of some of this as well, because he was the one that told his constituents to support Joe Biden in 2020 because Joe Biden was going to deliver for the African-American uh, community. Uh, I actually graduated from the University of South Carolina, but I didn't grow up in South Carolina. So I never really understood the admiration for someone like Jim Clyburn. People would say to me, it's because he hosts a fish fry. You can fry your own fish. This just goes to show you how little we are willing to 
to settle for in the black community, we need to start asking these leaders, some of the black leaders, what are they doing for the community today? And Jim Clyburn is not doing much for the community today. His district is one of the poorest districts in the country. Meanwhile, Jim is living just fine. So I think people like him have led us down this path. They've They've had us continue on the same path that we've been doing for the past couple decades, which is why we haven't received any type of progress when it comes to politics in this country. Now, in reference to Simone Sanders, we have to remember Simone Sanders was Joe Biden's senior advisor when he was running for president for 2020. Uh, she was hoping that she would get that press secretary gig that didn't pan out for her. He gave that to Jen Psaki instead. And it almost seems like they gave her an MSNBC position kind of to just quiet her uh, for, for so much of a bit. But this is Simone Sanders' job. She is still supposed to carry weight for the Democratic Party, to carry weight for Joe Biden, to defend him at all costs. And when she makes this statement that she's more concerned about the protesters that confronted Joe Biden, I'm more concerned about genocide, Simone. I'm more concerned about our tax dollars being spent to fund these wars abroad. I'm more concerned about the fact that the Democratic Party, till this day, refuses to give any type of real concessions to the African-American community. Those are the things that Simone Sanders should be upset about, but she's not. She's trying to make sure she holds her spot at MSNBC. I think you make a number of really important points there, both about Clyburn's influence in the district. Remember that a significant majority of South Carolina voters in 2020 said they voted for Joe Biden precisely because of Jim Clyburn's endorsement, as opposed to anything particular about Joe Biden. He really is a kingmaker in the state. He also, as you pointed out, uh, has one of the poorest districts in the country and perhaps unrelatedly in terms of his political affiliations has taken more money from the pharmaceutical industry than any other member of Congress. Now, as back to the Simone Sanders tweet and the backlash, um, you did see a lot of people making exactly that point in response to her tweet saying, what about the genocide? You're talking about hollow ground uh, in a church when people are protesting Israel's bombing of the third oldest church in the entire world that is in Gaza and the treatment of so many Palestinian Christians who have died in the birthplace of Christianity. Christi uh, Christmas, obviously, uh, we remember was canceled this year and the birthplace of Jesus. And of course, a former Congress member, Christian Congress member, two uh, family members were killed pretty early on uh, in this conflict. I, I want to ask you about the kind of racial dynamics of this as they played out in the wake of this controversy. One of the initial accusations was that these were white protesters that were disrupting a black space. And there was a clear kind of identity politics pivot that was made by the Democratic Party to say these are pesky white protesters. Um, that show no respect for the black community and trying to pit the black community, which has shown so much solidarity for the Palestinian cause uh, against the Palestinian community, both the United States of America and in the diaspora. What do you make of that choice? And what, what is the truth of what was happening there in the church? There was also, if you look at the woman standing next to uh, the, the white woman there, there was a black person there too as well. But the thing is, is that 
you should be disrupting these spaces whenever these politicians are present. This is where Joe Biden chose to be present at that point in time, regardless if it's a black church, regardless if it's uh, a school, regardless if it's a fundraiser that these politicians are attending. You should disrupt all spaces in effort to cease fire in reference to a genocide. Uh, I can't even believe people are using uh, this type of excuse when they're sitting up here carrying weight for, for a president of the United States who co-wrote the crime bill. Like, this is just absolutely ridiculous. Now he's complicit in a genocide. Anything to protect the status quo, anything to protect the Democratic Party, which is a corporate organization. We have to push back against the status quo in this country. And I don't know what it's going to take at this point. I do know that Jim Clyburn, for example, did have a challenger. Uh, I believe Marcel is running against Jim Clyburn again. Like, I don't know what more it's going to take for people to really wake up and understand that the status quo is leading us to a dead zone in this country. And if we want some type of real concessions for the black community, we're going to have to push some of these former black leaders to the side and we need new leadership. That's what it's really going to take. But I think that's an excuse that they tried to use. Uh, of course, they tried to play this card. How dare they even show up in that space in the first place? Well, Joe Biden is in that space and Joe Biden is an African-American. That's not really what it's about. Wow. They just didn't like the fact that they interrupted <laughs> the idea to protest. Are, are you sure he's, he's not African-American? Because I have a hard time imagining that a, a white uh, presidential candidate would turn to the black community and say, you ain't black if you don't support me. I'm joking. Of course, we should just um, also mention, I don't know that we know actually the race of this woman in the middle. Uh, she very may well be Palestinian. And we also should note, because we didn't do it so up top, couldn't we cut the clip off a little bit early, the, the free Palestine um, uh, cheers and advocates were drowned out by the rest of the crowd chanting four more years. And some folks thought that was a really interesting um, demonstration of the priorities of the Democratic Party that calls for peace and a ceasefire would be responded to with a political cry. I also just wanted to read one tweet from uh, journalist Terrell Jermaine uh, Starr, who I think represented uh, some interesting pushback here. He said, if you invite politics into the pulpit by inviting a presidential candidate to speak at a church, you welcome debate in the pews. Do you think there's something to that, that you open the door to this kind of a political uh, response if you turn a church, a house of worship, into a pulpit for a political exercise. That's right. I mean, everyone that attends this event isn't necessarily supposed to agree with Joe Biden and praise and applaud Joe Biden. Uh, we have we're supposed to have free speech in this country. Right. So we're supposed to welcome uh, those opportunities. But the thing is, is that when we look at people, again, like the puppet sitting next to him, Jim Clyburn, he has these churches in his back pocket. This is why so many people, he was able to convince them to come out and support Joe Biden instead of Bernie Sanders, mm -hmm. because Jim Clyburn has black churches on speed dial. He's able to win over that congregation, and that's all it takes. And people have to understand that a lot of this, when we talk about politics and how people choose to vote in reference to the black community, a lot of it starts with the black church. So that is where you have to go to make some type of change. If Jim, if Jim Clyburn was serious about progress in this country, all he would have to do was say, listen, guys, this has not been working. We've been supporting the Democratic Party. It is time for us to move outside of this vehicle. And it is time for us to honestly push towards some type of third party or independent race because they actually haven't been helping the African-American community. They would follow him, Bree. They would go where he will go. That's the thing. So Jim Clyburn, people like him, they are holding us back. And that's a big problem. Hmm. 
Savvy Sabs, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Rumors are swirling about Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s possible VP pick and former Hawaii Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard. Has she entered the chat? One user posted a source with connections to the Robert Kennedy Jr. campaign has told my ex-group of Kennedy 24 supporters that his rumored VP announcement date happens to coincide with his trip to Honolulu, Hawaii. Now, if this tidbit is true, then we can absolutely expect and assume Tulsi Gabbard will be the vice presidential choice of Robert F. Kennedy Jr. With her embrace of the center right these last few months, this very well could be a safe move for the Kennedy campaign. But just this morning, Gabbard announced a new partnership with Twitter or X. Let's watch. Free speech is something that a lot of us have taken for granted throughout our lives. It is fundamental to our rights that we have as Americans. Unfortunately, we live in a time where free speech is under attack. Lifting up your voice in dissent or challenge or questioning or even having a dialogue and debate is not only discouraged, it can be cause for retaliation or cancellation or censorship. We must defend our right to free speech. Now, RFK Jr. continues to be a craw on the side of both Joe Biden and Donald Trump, as he seems to be the strongest third-party candidate since Ross Perot, while former President Trump still leads Biden overall. In Arizona, RFK has a respectable 10 percent support, in Florida, 9 percent, in North Carolina, 11 percent, and in Michigan, 9 percent. RFK is even putting up solid numbers in places where Biden leads. In Virginia, RFK Jr. has 14 percent approval. Those numbers come from both Biden and Trump, as without RFK Jr. in the race, Trump and Biden both gain 7 percent support. So he's stealing equally from both candidates there. But the big news here is a potential Tulsi Gabbard VP. Let me put this to you. I understand that why that would be very exciting to the 10% of the public that already likes RFK Jr. Is it broadening the coalition at all to pick someone who is so kind of occupying the same online um, and rhetorical space, a lot of issue overlap with respect to some of the independent COVID um, critiques of the deep state type moves, critique, critiques of war? very, very similar space, is it actually going to improve his chances and generate excitement here? Look, I see what you're saying. There is so much overlap. One wonders if it's a missed opportunity to bring in new people. But Tulsi Gabbard, extremely popular with um, a lot of conservative uh, voters, uh, audiences, et cetera. She's on Fox News a lot. I believe she's a Fox News contributor now. Um, she's, she's well known to the right. She obviously comes before that from uh, the Bernie Sanders left, from your own worlds. Um, you know, she has, I, I think, a number of political positions that are, uh, she might not see it that way, but you would probably see as very estranged from those views. So I, I don't know that she's would bring in all that many people from the left, but I could see her peeling off some Trump-type people, frankly. Um, there is a lot of love for her in um, in conservative media. I think going beyond what was just a—obviously, there was an appreciation for RFK Jr. in conservative media when it looked like he was just kind of hurting Biden from mm -hmm. within the Democratic coalition. As soon as he moved out, that it was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Remember what this guy said about the Second Amendment? Mm -hmm. Remember what he, how he feels about environmental regulation? Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. Tulsi is pretty beloved. Um, and she might get some some favorable favorable coverage. And, and then obviously, I do think it seems like they're pretty in sync on on where RFK Jr. wants to focus now on 
COVID tyranny and mandates, um, frankly, even their foreign policy seems kind of in sync with the, mm -hmm. you know, non-intervention on Ukraine, that but a full-throated defense of Israel. That, yeah, exactly. That cuts both ways, because I do think that uh, Tulsi Gabbard might get more scrutiny for her, frankly, inconsistent views on Israel. Um, she brands herself as someone who's against the warmongers, who's against money flowing out of the door to these um, regime change wars, is what she often calls yes. and often talks to them about, but feels very differently about Israel, much like RFK Jr. Max Blumenthal has challenged Tulsi Gabbard to a debate on the issue of Israel-Palestine, which she has declined to take up on. And I do think that once she's in the spotlight, it might draw more attention to the inconsistencies within um, RFK Jr.'s own political program that drove so many people on the left who once sure. supported him away, just like so many people on the left who once supported Tulsi Gabbard have changed their mind as she's kind of reinvented herself politically. I think this will further drive away people on the left if they were interested in RFK Jr. Um, I, I think that was kind of happening anyway, given that there are other more down the line left kind of people in the race, um, you know, either on the within the Democratic side, like Marianne Williamson and Jane Uger, or the Green Party candidate or Cornell West. Um, there's a lot of places for the really left left person to go for this, you know, heterodox, some formerly left views, maybe very concerned about COVID, this foreign policy view taking from the right. I think this is actually a strong move to lean into that strategy. Mm -hmm. um, and I could see I could see the RFK Tulsi ticket pulling even more from uh, from the right. Now, we should say this is just a rumor. This, it's a good rumor. If he's going to announce while he's in Hawaii, that makes mm -hmm. a lot of sense. Um, I don't know that Tulsi is actually signing up to do this because, like I said, she has a she's a Fox News deal. Um, she's just announced this partnership with uh, with Twitter that we just played that clip of. So that doesn't sound like gearing up for another foray into politics, but anything's possible. So many presidential candidates get this accusation lobbed at them. Um, is this just about a book deal? So many presidential candidates do have books coming out. So, you know, those things aren't mutually exclusive. Yeah. Campaigns are expensive. You have to fund them. Not everyone is a, is a billionaire candidate like a Bloomberg or a uh, uh, Steve um, uh, Phillips even is, I think, a billionaire. If not, Dean Phillips. Dean Phillips. Uh, if not a multi, 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 multi millionaire. I'm pretty sure he's a billionaire. Um, so, you know, that's not such a criticism. Mm -hmm. But if this just is a branding exercise, it's such a good branding exercise. If I, if I were judging this just on optics as opposed to whether or not it expands the political coalition, I'd give it an A+. So I am, I am scrutinizing it from that uh, perspective. It is also worth noting focusing on the New Deal with Twitter X, and we'll talk about this in more depth in a different segment, but Twitter is under significant criticism for launching a purge against um, left-leaning accounts that have been very, very critical, uh, large accounts that have been critical mm. of U.S. foreign policy with respect to Israel. Uh, four or five of those accounts got uh, blocked last night in what seems to some people like a coordinated effort that's out of step with the values of Twitter. Again, we'll talk about that in a different segment, but Green Greenwald and others who have been very consistent on the speech issue are raising questions about whether or not this issue is the red line that frankly mm. exposes so much of the rhetoric about having an investment in free speech as exactly that, just rhetoric. Yeah, we're going to delve into more of that a little bit later on the show, and we will have more rising right after this. The moment you've been waiting for is finally here. Don Lemon is back with a new show. Mr. Lemon posted a note to X 
sharing the new Don Lemon show will be airing on Twitter soon. The former CNN anchor wrote that X is the largest free speech platform in the world and that space for honest debate is needed without the hall monitors. And with Don in, some other prominent accusations are out. A purge of the accounts of several major journalists has taken place on Twitter. Those suspended from the app include Stephen Zetti of the Texas Observer, Ken Klippenstein of The Intercept in front of the show, blogger Rob Rousseau, journalist Max McLeod, and the account for podcast Truanon Pod. Notably, these are all left-leaning or overwhelmingly left-leaning sources that have been very critical of the siege of Gaza of late. One Twitter user called it the night of Elong knives and commented that Twitter seems to be purging leftist accounts. Glenn Greenwald also weighed in, saying multiple other ex-accounts suspended in the last couple of days, several of them large and influential, including well-known journalists. The one thing they have in common, they've been harshly criticizing Israel since October 7th. Let's start there and then circle back to the fun stuff. Um, very concerning, demands obvious explanation. Um, people should not, given what Elon Musk has said about him wanting Twitter X to be a place for free speech and open dialogue, saying that was a major motivation in him buying the platform to, to fix to correct the censorship problems that he helped expose that were going on uh, relating to election integrity and COVID policies and all of that, all of those speech violations that occurred when uh, government actors kind of forced themselves on content moderators that he had set out to correct. Um, this is obviously in tension with that um, and, and must be explained and should be, frankly, corrected unless it, it, would, it seems totally unbelievable that these accounts, all of which have a similar ideological persuasion, actually violated some tangible policy and didn't just um, tick off Elon for political reasons or whoever the person ultimately making these decisions. It, ne it needs explanation and correction. I mean, sure. look what we know about Elon Musk. We saw that Elon Musk, after saying some vaguely sympathetic uh, I wouldn't even say sympathetic to Palestine statements, just kind of practical statements about how unrealistic it is to think that you're going to bomb Hamas or any resistance group out of existence. He was invited to fly to Israel. He had this big sit down with senior officials there and Benjamin Netanyahu and came back wearing Israeli dog tags, pledging to make the statement from the river to the sea or uh, characterizing uh, Israel as a colonial project disallowed and bannable behavior on the app. Now, it doesn't seem like that has happened. I personally have tweeted along those lines. I've seen other people tweet along those lines and seemingly have not been banned. But these are huge accounts, tens of thousands, uh, hundreds of thousands of follower accounts that have a great deal of traction, that have been very engaged in the ongoing Twitter meltdown from Bill Ackman, who, of course, as we know, uh, was one of the people leading the charge, a big Harvard donor who was leading the charge against having Claudine Gay uh, removed from her post as president of the college. All of these people have been very much engaged in specifically because of that debate and because of obviously the ongoing siege in critiques of Israeli foreign policy. And it seems to, I think, be an irreducible conclusion, an unavoidable conclusion, that there's a relationship between the politics of the people who have been canceled and Elon Musk's own commitments to align with Israel from a policy perspective. Well, yeah, sure. And it doesn't matter either way. It seems inappropriate to me unless some actual justification can be made. I, I wouldn't, I'm not inclined to believe a justification if one is offered. Um, it might be that these accounts, because there are a lot of accounts, including yours, very critical of Israeli policy, it might be that these 
people specifically have written articles or uh, uh, that were criticizing not just Israel but Elon. Now that that's no excuse because he says it's a free speech platform, um, so he he needs to. Clarify whether that remains the case, and uh, I hope we get some answers soon. I, the last thing I want to say on that is I do think that there is a tendency with Elon Musk for people who support him generally or some aspect of his uh, the Twitter files to not hold him to the standards that he purports to defend. Mm -hmm. And the more he gets away with that, whether it was, remember, Barry Weiss got kicked off of the Twitter files project because she— consistently said, hey, Elon, you can't ban accounts that are reporting on the Elon Jet story mm -hmm. simply because you feel like that's a negative story about you. So we know that he has acted vindictively in the past. We know that he have, has acted in a way that is self-protective as opposed to by some general principle. We heard him ruminate about whether or not to bring Kanye back or Alex Jones back and make decisions on the basis of his own personal tragedy, saying, well, Alex Jones is a bridge too far because it was about killing children and I lost a child. Well, my least favorite and then he revised bringing that. people back in accordance with the results of a poll. That right. is by far my least right. favorite way to do content moderation. Right. Popularity contest for the users, that right. is totally at odds with the free speech. So look, I've, I've defended yeah. him. I think some of the criticisms he've got, he's gotten, yeah, it, look, it is difficult to simultaneously run a business that has advertisers, and that is monitored by these third-party hate speech checking organizations, and that is also facing all sorts of demands from various governments, including the U.S. government and including governments that have far, that do not respect free speech whatsoever. So I think it can be a difficult task, but this is a very clear-cut right. example. And also, don't hold yourself out as a free speech platform if, uh, yeah. if at bottom you're just a media company that's trying to make money. And that's it's a good lead back into the uh, top story here, which is that Don Lemon is joining in part because he's averring that that Twitter is one of the last spaces of free speech that will allow open dialogue on the internet. He's saying that as he's coming to Twitter, and I think it begs the question whether or not what Twitter is cultivating here is not actually a free speech platform, but a platform that allows certain kind of views, liberal, democratic, establishment views like Don Lemon's, and won't allow progressive leftist views that are actually challenging the military-industrial complex and American foreign policy in meaningful ways. And I think we also saw this with Elon reneging on his promise to offer an equal platform to all of the presidential candidates, including Marianne Williamson. Yeah, I wish he would give Marianne Williamson a platform. Um, I'm, <laughs> I think the Don, I mean, I was not exactly clamoring for a Don Lemon <laughs> news show. I don't think you were. I'm not sure a lot of people were. Linda seems to think uh, that people were clamoring for But you know this. what? I would certainly watch um, some kind of Avenger-style meetup between him and Tucker Carlson, another uh, pr person who creates content for um, Twitter. I think that would be entertaining, if nothing else. And you know what? Some things can just be entertaining without having any underlying news value. That would be um, just fine. Uh, we talked earlier that Tulsi is going to be joining uh, the platform in some kind of way. Do you know what I did last month, Brianna? What's that? I finally, I did it. You can all say, we told you you would eventually. I bought the blue check mark. I well, did it. it, it I, I, did I think it. it's almost irresponsible for media yeah. figures. Not well, I didn't to have realize it. you can, the, the whole um, sharing monetization thing. I mean, the, 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 the highest subscription level only costs like, it costs like $19.99 a month. And I oh. immediately, from, from, my tweets doing okay. I, like, I'm not tweeting. I'm just tweeting a little bit more than I was before. I got 
paid like more than that sure. amount after two days. Yeah, I, um, I, so it I, seems I, easily, it's, I don't know why everyone wouldn't do it, but. Well, I don't have um, that kicked on. I just kept, I didn't sign up for Twitter Blue. I always had Twitter Blue long before uh, Elon Musk owned the app, so I just maintained my, my previous subscription rate. I do think it's do interesting though to add. It pays for itself. <laughs> just Secret what, tip out there, it pays for itself. Depending on how many followers you have and yeah. how well, you got more than I do. Is. Yeah, but for the, uh, the average viewer, I don't know that it's gonna right. play, pay for itself, but I do wanna just bring into focus what uh, Don Lemon's kind of um, counter-cultural perspective is likely to be. Remember the circumstances of him leaving cable news. It wasn't because he made some strident critique of the deep state. It wasn't because he criticized Joe Biden or any other establishment, Democratic Party or Republican Party figure. It wasn't because he challenged uh, corporate corruption. It wasn't because he challenged the captured nature of our political system. No, it was because he made some off-color remarks, uh, vaguely sexist remarks uh, about uh, Nikki Haley and got into spats with his female co-host. And so I think that my, project, my prediction is that what we can expect is that he continues to run cover for the establishment in every meaningful way, but that he will be a culture warrior punching at wokeness and be very much on a um, Bill Maher trajectory where he feels very mm -hmm. confident and powerful and strong for beating up on woke scolds while never touching any of the real red lines that got real journalists and real courageous people out here on Twitter uh, canceled last night. I appreciate more uh, combatants in the war on wokeness, but we shall see where his editorial uh, guidance goes. More rising right after this. Journalist Mehdi Hassan is officially out at MSNBC. The host of the Mehdi Hassan show uh, on for three years announced he was leaving the network this weekend per New Year's New Year New Plans. It's been an absolute blast doing this live show on MSNBC for the past three years with an amazing team of producers behind me and with all of you watching at home. It's been a privilege. It's been a pleasure. But as we begin 2024 with an election coming, a war still ongoing and too many Trump trials, honestly, to even keep track of. And with this show going away, I've decided that it's time for me to look for a new challenge. Tonight is not just my final episode of The Mehdi Hassan Show. It's my last day with MSNBC. Yes, I've decided to leave. To be clear, I am so proud, so, so proud of what we've achieved on this show, on this network. And I can't thank you all enough for tuning in and for your support and for your feedback. But as I say, new year, new plans. You can continue to follow me online at Mehdi R. Hassan on Instagram, on threads, and of course, Twitter or X. Where I'll give you updates on what's coming next for me. For now, from me, for one last time on this network, good night. Now, Democratic strategist Walid Shaheed wrote on X that he keeps hearing that this great interview by Mehdi Hassan of Netanyahu advisor Mark Regev is one of the big reasons that his show got canceled, that it was too adversarial, too truthy. Let's take a look at some of that. Look, this operation is not one that we wanted, obviously. This, this war was forced upon Israel in the terrible attack of October 7th, and, and we are fighting back, and we will destroy Hamas. We'll dismantle their military machine, and we'll take apart their political control of Gaza. That's good for Israel for obvious reasons. We don't have to live in fear of terrorists crossing the border and killing our people, butchering our children in the middle of the night. But it's ultimately also good, and I hope you agree with me, it'll be good for the people of Gaza who deserve better than this terrible authoritarian well, extreme Hamas regime. 
The people of Gaza are still alive. As I say, more than 11,000 people dead, reported dead, 4,000 children. I just want to pull up on the screen. Hamas. Hamas's numbers. You say Hamas's numbers. I should point out, just pull up on the screen. In the last two major Gaza conflicts, 2009 and 2014, the Israeli military's death dolls matched Hamas's health ministry death toll. So, and the UN human rights groups all agree that those numbers are credible. Here we have to say something that isn't said enough. Hamas, until now, we're, we're destroying their military machine, and with that, we're eroding their control. But up until now, they've been in control of the Gaza Strip. And as a result, they control all the images coming out of Gaza. Have you seen one picture of a single dead Hamas terrorist in the fighting in Gaza? Not one. Is that yeah, by accident, have, or is that because Hamas well, can control... Hamas can Mark, control the information. You asked me a question and you Gaza. said you would be brief. I, have, I haven't, you're right, but I have seen lots of children with my own lying eyes being pulled from the rubble. Uh, because so they're the pictures Hamas wants you to see. During the final episode of his show last night, Betty Hassan spoke to Gaza photojournalist Motaz Aziza. Uh, the first message is uh, don't call yourself a free people, a free person, if you can't make changes, if you can't uh stop a genocide that is is going is still ongoing since the, the first day we are so close to be a hundred day of of murdering and genocides so don't you call yourself a free person if you can't stop someone to kill someone else because uh, what i witness here that all the world is uh, is ruled by a people that uh, no one in the whole world can say no to them or that they can't stop them. So nobody shall call himself a free pay person if he's uh, watching another people, another human being getting murdered in front of him. Now, the real question here that's top of mind and that uh, Walid Shahid was opining on there is why did this happen? What we knew was that his show was getting canceled. There was speculation as to why, given how important his voice has become in the wake of the uh, October 7th and the subsequent siege on Gaza. Immediately after that conflict erupted, the three most prominent, perhaps the three only mainstream news Muslim commentators were sidelined. There was never any explanation given for that. They were ultimately returned to their role. So whether it was that they just all happened to have events that took them away from their desks during that week, whether it was just a coincidence, none of them ever weighed in on very public speculation that they had been deliberately sidelined because their coverage of the siege on Gaza was too sympathetic to the humanitarian interests of Palestinians. And now it's not just that his show has ended. Remember, the show was ending, but he was planning to co-host and do other things on weekend shows, still be a part of the MSNBC family. Now he has decided to leave the network entirely, and it's difficult not to read into that a choice that has to do with his substantive politics, especially as we're talking about this in the context of the recent purge of so many pro-Palestine, left-leaning voices from X just last night. Right. Although we have some news on that, they have been, at least many of them, have now been brought back. Uh, Ken Klippenstein, one of the accounts that was taken down, tweeting about it, that he's back, um, and several of the others. I can't confirm right now that they're all back. Um, there's his very amusing tweet. Um, I would still like some clarification for why that well, was. Well, I have some breaking, actually. I actually was DMing uh, Ken as we were setting up for this segment. I asked him, was any insight given into this? He said, Says to go to his Substack, he'll be talking about this in more detail. But here's some breaking from us. What he said was that no reason was given, literally no email, nothing, no terms of service violations cited. 
it's extremely weird. So we'll I definitely have to follow up to see what's going on there. Sure, we'd love to have Ken on. Um, back to Mehdi Hassan, this is going to be another one of those cases where, so I don't know why they got rid of him, obviously. I, don't, my, I do have a lot of objections to Mehdi Hassan. They don't really have to do with his palace, his Gaza coverage, which I've, I've not specifically been following what he has to say about it. I'm sure I disagree with him in places. If he was taken off the air for that reason, I would probably object to that. Um, I, I, I did really dislike his coverage of, of the Twitter files. He's feuding with Matt Taibbi, um, Lee Fong, someone we've had on the show many times who's not a conservative right-wing lunatic by any stretch of the imagination, um, uh, uh, later called out Mehdi Hassan for getting very basic facts wrong about the way DHS content moderation works. I have also personally clashed with Mehdi, which is, you know, all fair. He yeah, so am I. with me, but well, let me finish. Yeah. On, uh, on COVID specifically, uh, he said that I was a uh, anti-Fauci conspiracy theorist for asking questions um, about the lab leak. Um, he looked very dismissively on people who had to talk about that. So I've not particularly enjoyed his um, his uh, his, his uh, things to say on COVID in particular and on um, the Twitter files, but um, I obviously I think people have the right to disagree and say things I don't like. And he is by far he is you know not the sole voice on MSNBC who has a perspective I don't agree with, and um, right. and I, I don't so you know I'm not like celebrating him being taken off the air. Or anything. He isn't the sole person at MSNBC who you disagree with, and me either. I have feuded both publicly and privately with Mehdi Hassan. We were formerly colleagues together at the Intercept, and so was, was Lee Fong. But he is the only person at MSNBC who might be being pushed out now because of his particular beliefs on this particular issue, which is increasingly revealing itself to be the red line in American politics, a line that people like RFK Jr. are not brave enough to cross, a line that people like Tulsi Gabbard, despite all of the hand-wringing and advocacy for being an anti-war candidate are not willing to cross. And it, it is interesting, Mehdi Hassan, um, just this morning, actually weighed in on the controversy around Elon Musk in a way that might give some insight into where his mind is at. So to be clear, I would, I would fault him for not coming out and specifically telling us what's been going on at MSNBC. His failure to do so, if in fact he feels like he was pushed out for ideological reasons, amounts to running cover for a network that doesn't deserve it. But I, don't, I, w I wonder what you make of this. He did tweet this morning about the announcement that uh, Tulsi Gabbard and um, Don Lemon, but specifically Tulsi Gabbard, are, are going to be having these uh, Twitter shows. He tweeted, hilarious that she's announcing this on the exact same day that a bunch of left-wing journalists, remember the left, which she used to be pretend to be a part of, were just suddenly suspended without any explanation or due process by Twitter. I do wonder if that's some clue that he is very sensitive to censorship campaigns against pro-Palestinian voices. And is this a kind of proxy battle he's fighting because he's unwilling or unable to talk explicitly about what's been going on inside the House at MSNBC? Yeah. Again, to be abundantly clear, I don't support him being taken off the air or censored for any reason for his Israeli coverage um, and so on and so forth. I don't, I, I, I th but I can recall all of the times he made, you know, he was very much leaning into misinformation being this big crisis, um, social media, Elon not doing enough to take down bad information, very much part of that regime, thinking the Twitter files was a nothing burger, thinking that it revealed actually good developments, that it's it's good that the government and uh, Twitter are coordinating to take down um, your mistruths about COVID and the election. So, you know, if that's your attitude, you can always be the next one on the chopping block, and I think it's unfortunate right, that he was. Right, but it's incumbent on all of us if we'd actually believe in what we say about free speech 
you know, I'm not going to look at a murder victim and say, well, he had bad politics. Do we care about the substantive crime here, which is the censorship that I, I criticize Elon Musk for not holding up his values? Who is going to be the person who, instead of saying, well, I told you so, and well, you did it bad, so I can do bad too, actually stands with their principle at a moment where major journalists last night were censored off Twitter without any explanation. And Mehdi Hassan, one of three Muslim co-anchors at major institutions, is now leaving his show in the midst, days before, days before we have an international court of justice hearing on the question of whether or not Israel is committing a genocide before our eyes. Now, it's also worth noting that one— but, but, but I have to—I look, I totally agree with you, and I'm, I'm not undermining that at all. He gave credence to the Stacey Plaskett concern that uh, he helped create that idea what, that Matt Taibbi had what does that have lied to, do with to Congress me? and thus should be charged for what, a crime. But what is that? That's, I'm just reminding fine, the audience Roddy, of that. But the, the issue before us today is do we want to say Mehdi was a bad person and therefore we don't care well, I don't know that, that censorship person. is allowed to go unchecked or are we going to stand on our values as journalists in this moment? Are we going to stand on our values when over 100 journalists have been killed in Palestine and they feel like they're being targeted for their I think Mehdi Hassan's coverage of censorship issues was itself encouraging of censorship. Okay. He, that be the case, so he should not be Here's what I want to speak to. One of, the, um, one of these censored parties who had a very large and influential um, uh, account, uh, who appears to be back but has not tweeted yet, um, he uh, provided DMs to others while he was uh, being, uh, to another, uh, actually censored account, the true, uh, I think, um, well, the point is that he, he DMed what he thought was the explanation, again, unsubstantiated, but he tweeted, he had been tweeting quite a bit about Bill Ackman's um, attacks on uh, efforts to quiet, to censor any pro-Palestinian speech, to characterize it as anti-Semitism, to get people fired, not just uh, Claudine Gay, much more extensively than Claudine Gay. He's been calling for the doxing of students, preventing them from having uh, jobs and the like, the way I covered on my radar yesterday. Yep. He said, it's LOL, it's definitely Bill Ackman causing the censorship, the, 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 block, um, the banning of people from Twitter. He said, that's actually effing insane. Bill Ackman is going around sending Twitter accounts to Elon of people who exposed him and his wife's Epstein connections to ban. Bill Ackman really is the most deranged. Well, I'll, I'll skip some of the expletives. But that, that he definitely believes, at least, and we'll have to follow up to see if there's any confirmation of this, that the people who were targeted here were specifically targeted because— Bill Ackman, a multi-billionaire, has the level of influence and pull not just to determine who's president of Harvard, but also who gets to be or not be on Twitter. And it's worth noting that someone, one of the other banned accounts also pointed to the idea that it was only advocacy from someone like Glenn Greenwald or some of these other big accounts that have a relationship with Elon Musk that they got returned to the app. So is that a paradigm that we want to be in, that if you have powerful allies on your side, big Twitter accounts on your side, people who have a personal relationship with Elon Musk, then you can have your rights restored to you. But if not, you're just out of luck. I mean, obvi yeah, obviously not. And I, <laughs> I don't support the cancellation of Mehdi Hassan, even though I believe he would gleefully support me and Matt Taibbi and other people having been taken off Twitter. Um, more rising right after this. Gypsy Rose Blanchard is out from prison after serving an eight-year prison sentence, and she's taking the town in New York City. Hey, everybody. So we are in Times Square. Look at this. Isn't this epic? Oh, my God. I'm so enjoying my time right now. Um, we're just walking Times Square and doing a little shopping. 
I bought an I Love New York t-shirt, which was on my bucket list, so that was pretty awesome. Okay, stay tuned for more. Bye. Now, if you're not familiar with Gypsy Rose's incredible story, she pled guilty to second-degree murder after her then-boyfriend killed her mother, Dee Dee. In court, Gypsy Rose argued she suffered years of abuse at the hands of her mother in the form of Munchausen by proxy, in which Dee Dee lied to countless medical professionals that Gypsy had severe physical and mental disabilities in order to get sympathy and attention. So this uh, is a very famous and unique story case. Uh, there was, uh, I think there have been a number of documentaries, films about it. Um, I, I've seen one of them. It, it, many people are, are very compelled by it. Um, obviously, murder is wrong, uh, but the suffering inflicted on Gypsy Rose by her mother is uh, is insane and vast. And um, this girl really, I mean, she was a abused four years, forced to be in a wheelchair, forced not to use her legs, forced to perform um, sickness in front of other people. She did think she was sick. She thought she had these um, these yeah. conditions, and it went on and on, and it was so evil um, that she this the she met uh, a man online a, a, a boy and um, persuaded him to take this course of action again bad she has now served her prison time and has been released um, uh, but a, a lot of people feel that this was a difficult situation for this young person even like the prosecutor was like I've never seen a case like this yeah in so my let's life. talk a little bit about that background so apparently the way that she got into the wheelchair in the first place is that she had a minor bike accident when she was younger that resulted in a scuff on her knee the mother said get into the get a, into a wheelchair it was not medically indicated uh, her mother uh, made her drink Pedialyte as her primary source of nutrition well into adulthood. She uh, told, she told her, her she to was lie about her age. <laughs> All the time, she said, you're about to die. She, she, they lied about her age and gave the impression that she was younger than she was and not mentally competent. Um, the mother shaved her head saying that because you were sick, you are going to have to lose your hair anyway. So she had the appearance of someone who was going through chemotherapy uh, treatment, even though she wasn't. She went to took her to multiple doctors um, so that they couldn't confirm each other's yes. diagnosis. When they would start to catch on, she would take them somewhere else. So there was an initial non-diagnosis of mul uh, muscular dystrophy. A muscle sample had res res results show that she did not suffer from that particular ailment. Um, but doctors didn't uncover that for quite some time because there was this kind of uh, three-card Monty of shuffling through doctors and medical records and never being fully transparent. She was not a good uh, reporter, as they call it, um, uh, uh, someone who was not good at articulating accurately, truthfully, the, the child's medical records, which caused a lot of confusion. And when doctors, yes, began to catch on, they tended to just move away. And they also exploited um, the Charity. fact— they exploited charity. They exactly. got her a house. They got her all sorts of things. Um, it, it was <laughs> very evil, very disturbed yeah. behavior from this mother uh, who was just deeply psychotic. Um, Gypsy Rose has the support of her her father, her her birth father. I think her mother's parents like are again totally supportive of. I mean, not, again, not endorsing of murder necessarily, but saying what other choice did this. Did, did Gypsy Rose have given her situation? Um, so, so she is out now, and she's a, a been you know kind of a social media sensation. I think she's been out for the last year because a lot of people watched this documentary and again felt very sympathetic and compelled by her story. Um, again, I don't want to at all glorify taking matters into your own hands, uh, there, but there is a argument of self defense almost that can be mounted here. Um, now, the the boyfriend who committed the actual murder. Um, and, it, and it was it was a grisly crime, and he got you know prison for life. 
so, so he's not out. Yeah, so um, go, go to John, um, the then boyfriend. Apparently, the, the, the plan unfolded as follows. Gypsy and her mother were away at a doctor's appointment, um, and after they had gone home, the mother went to sleep. The boyfriend came into the, the family's home. Gypsy let him in and gave him duct tape gloves and a knife with the understanding um, that he would use it to murder Dee Dee, which explains why she also got a significant amount of prison time. But she did not actually uh, commit the murder. She hid right. in the bathroom um, and, and allegedly covered her ears while that was going on. Um, so as not to have to hear uh, her mother being killed in the next room. It's really just there's no winners in this situation. It's a, it's a terrible, tragic uh, scenario for her to have been in. She did attempt escapes at various points. At one point, she was at a... Um, a convention. A Comic-Con style, yeah, yeah. sci-fi convention, and tried to escape. She also engaged in some risky behaviors meeting up with men online. She was vulnerable to predation because she had never been exposed to the real world and she had a so, very legitimate desire right. to escape and to escape at any means necessary. So, again, people are rooting for her because she was in unimaginable conditions and who knows what any of us would have done in those kinds of scenarios. But we're all very hopeful that she's able to be happy now that she's out and that she doesn't get exploited further because there have been some people who have reached out to her with some... Um, probably less than ideal offers for her to engage in now that she's out. She needs to earn money, you know. I have heard the concern articulated that, um, again, I think a figure of tremendous sympathy has now served her time, and that was appropriate, and is now out, and I, I think she has served her time, and like other people who, you know, do the crime, do the time, now should be able to enjoy her life, um, the life she was deprived of b before prison under these horrific circumstances. I have heard the concern expressed that perhaps we ought to be careful about making her too much of some kind of folk hero for concern that there will be copycat type things or giving the wrong impression to young girls. I've just heard that fear articulated, so I wanted to put it out there. I mean, how how common is Munchausen by proxy? It feels like a very rare... No, not that common. I, I, I don't know that it's specifically the concern is that people actually in that situation would do the same thing, but that... There'll be it'd be part of some it'd be some icon of teen rebellion or something against your parents. Well, she did also serve time, so she did. If people want to rebel in a way that gives them eight years in prison, that's a pretty uh, right. lofty do consequence. They should not do that. Uh, that I, th I think has got a pretty strong deterrent built in there. Yeah, it, this, the story for me when I watched the documentary, just the 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 things you can get away with in this in just still somehow in society, the, the multiple scams this mother was running. And people did catch on, and they made, you know, they made some good faith efforts, doctors did, other people did, to follow up, uh, but it, she was able to, um, to, to, to move, to move uh, where she lived, and, and disguise this fact. Neighbors uh, would start to catch on, and she would move again. So it's not like everyone was blind to some obvious truth. People would catch on, and they'd say something, but, but it, then it would fall through the cracks, and she perpetrated this with the mother for years and years and years and years, convincing her daughter that she was sick, that she was about to die, that she yeah. couldn't use her legs, so she shouldn't use them. Um, truly wild. It wasn't uh, Jeffrey Dahmer who very famously had one of his captives, one of his victims, escaped. Um, right. But because he preyed on men, uh, gay, young gay men, and because so many of his victims were black and brown, when the person escaped and got to a police officer and was explaining what had happened, it had been clearly stripped naked and was bloody and was in distress, when he Dahmer did, yeah. came along, charming and 
middle class presenting and white and said to the cop, oh, no, 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 this isn't what it looks like. The cop returned the victim to Dahmer and, was, and, the, and the victim was ultimately killed. I mean, the, fa the systemic failures in these kind of scenarios abound, and I think you're right to point them out. Why, why, what, what mechanisms should exist for children to be able to advocate for themselves, especially, I mean, what's so tragic about this case is that she did have relationships with people. She had a friendship with a, girl, a woman, a young woman that lived across the street. The young woman thought she was much older than Gypsy Rose. They were age peers, um, but they would, she would confide in her, talk about wanting to meet up with people from the internet, those kinds of things. But you have to know that you're being victimized to explain to someone else right. that you need to be saved. And I do think that's one of the more poignant aspects of this story. It's not as though she was kept in a locked box in the basement, but she was, she was participating paraded around. in her own you're, delusion. Yes, she thought she was sick. She thought right. she believed her mother. Right. And that, that betrayal of trust, you expect to be able to believe your mother. Right. And I think that, that, is, that is really what pulls at the heartstrings of the story is that she was betrayed in such, in such a fundamental way by the person you're supposed to be able to trust the most in the world. Yeah, absolutely. All right, stay around. More Rising after this. President Joe Biden is enlisting corporate media for his 2024 campaign, and he has some notes for reporters accusing them of being too nice to Donald Trump something the media is known for, of course. Now, according to Semaphore, Biden's re-election campaign has initiated a series of confidential visits for corporate media reporters and editors to their headquarters in Wilmington, Delaware. The purpose, they say, is to engage with key officials, including the campaign manager, deputies, and senior advisors, providing background briefings on campaign strategy. The campaign will also use these sessions as an opportunity to address perceived inaccuracies in media coverage. According to sources familiar with the matter, campaign officials have utilized a coverage spreadsheet to outline areas where they believe reporting, particularly on former President Donald Trump, has been lacking. The campaign expresses dissatisfaction with what they perceive to be an excessive focus on Trump's legal issues, emphasizing a desire for more attention to his recent provocative statements on the campaign trail. RFK Jr. responded to this reporting, writing on X, we might as well call it state-run media because that is what corporate media becomes when it takes instructions from the state. Just this past December, Biden lamented the media's coverage of the economy. Let's take a look. About the economy, sir, what's your outlook on the economy next year? All good. Take a look. Start reporting it the right way. So this is one of my favorite genres, the incumbent, and it happens with both parties, uh, complaining that the media coverage is, uh, is too negative. Um, obviously, Joe Biden wants, wants the media to be celebrating more what he perceives as his considerable accomplishments and not have all this attention paid to the uh, abys—maybe recovering, but abysmal for some time state of the economy, all the disappointments that voters that you talk about have with his policies from a left standpoint not being progressive enough, the dissatisfaction a lot of minority voters seem to have with President Biden. Um, <laughs> Uh, Muslim voters over uh, over the Israel situation and uh, and so on and so forth and then just even not particularly partisan or ideological voters seeming to not being able to stomach him being so old and manifesting the age yeah. question but and, yeah. but the media is covering it sorry but, but what's bizarre is that this the specific editorial judgments that are being critiqued here aren't oh I wish you would talk more about my you know, the things that I've done for America in the last three years or talk more about Trump being bad. you're not beating up on Trump enough. In the right way. 
Yeah. It's not even that you're not being about Trump enough. It's you're focusing too much on his legal woes and not enough on whatever provocative thing he recently said on the campaign trail. That accusation is just frankly not true. The most recent controversial thing Donald Trump said, or that was crazy, the, uh, was the, um, uh, the idea that he was describing immigrants or the, uh, damaging the blood of our country, that remark, and the accusation that that was out of Mein Kampf, that got wall-to-wall media coverage. It was, co- it was a two-week news cycle. I talked about it on—I uh, was on Fox's uh, Media Recap Sunday morning show, they, where they played—where we discussed it, and they played clips of all the other networks covering it mm-hmm. as well. That one got some mileage. So I don't think you that, can fairly say that, that Trump is not being scrutinized for saying that. That is true, things. but it, I'm sorry. That is true, but one, Trump kept saying it. So that's why I think the cycle lasted longer than it would have if he had just said it once. Uh, I believe he said it twice. And then secondly, I think even though that did get covered, that was, it felt like an anomaly. It, it's been dwarfed. Come on. It's been dwarfed by the co- coverage of. One six insurrection. Is he going to jail? Is he going to get from the uh, stripped from the ballot? The 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 main story, the Colorado story. I mean, all of that is part and parcel of his legal woes. Well, sure, the, and those are big news stories, and, and, yeah. and they are. And and I don't th- I don't frankly fault journalists for covering those stories, but. Joe Biden's campaign is faulting journalists for covering those stories, perhaps because he thinks that what hurts Trump more is being framed as a. Uh, racist who thinks that immigrants are going to ruin the blood of our country, as opposed to this legal stuff, which maybe has run its course in terms of how many people are going to flip from him. And I think that hmm. you're seeing—I don't think that that's necessarily no, true. No, I don't think it's true at all. But I think that you're seeing <laughs> you it strategically. When, when you look at Joe Biden's behavior, the fact that he made a choice to go to South Carolina, to go to Mother Emanuel Church, to clearly try to— um, uh, appeal to black America by, I would argue, exploiting a horrible mass shooting tragedy that happened there by a white supremacist. I do think that there, and an indisputable white supremacist, I, I do think that there is a clear choice by the Biden administration, by the Biden campaign to say, we think that Trump is most vulnerable when you tie him to Charlottesville. You see this in the ad choices as well. We think that he's most vulnerable when you tie him to white supremacy, when you tie him to Dylan Roof, when you tie him to the great replacement theory. And regardless of what we think about strategically, that seems to be what's going on and why he's leaning on the press to talk about that angle as opposed to he might be going to jail. Yeah, that seems similar to the Hillary Clinton campaign strategy, frankly, mm-hmm. uh, the, you know, deplorables, et cetera, the idea. And, and the media did. They played ball with that narrative. We will portray Trump. I mean, you know, I'm not saying portraying unfairly. He said a lot of incendiary things um, about immigrants, et cetera, uh, you know, bat, SHIT countries, that kind of stuff. But they they covered that relentlessly. They, they thought that that would be the thing that turned enough people away from Trump is the rhetoric specifically surrounding race and some other things. It absolutely did not work in 2016. Some people will go further than that, say it, not only did it not work, it backfired. Um, I, I don't—obviously, that was part of, of uh, the, the Biden critique in 2020 as well, but my perception is that was not nearly front and center as it was for the Hillary Clinton campaign. It was more about basic competency and how bad the country had gotten, even, frankly, over the last six months as COVID was was enveloping. So it seems—and and now they have this storyline, these tangible legal woes that, um, while they certainly fire up the right a lot, they've created a rally-around effect for Trump, um, seem to— um, 
again, whenever we do actual voting of kind of independent swing voters, people in uh, in battleground states, they don't like how Trump handled his election loss, and they don't like candidates that emphasize it, and they don't want to hear more from him on that. So you would think, if anything, leaning into the legal woes is a better strategy than rerunning the 2016 Hillary Clinton campaign playbook. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. There was a viral clip out of The View that was going around yesterday where Sonny Hostin actually criticized Joe Biden, saying that the thing that got me going, that, that, that got me in your camp, even though I was looking at a lot of different candidates in, in 2020, was your framing of framing the soul of the nation. I have a hard time wrapping my brain around that, but let's just go with it. Okay. Obviously, that had some kind of appeal to some people, the idea that we were coming out of a divisive era with Donald Trump and that we were going to bring the country back together and that Joe Biden was going to be the guy who did it. He wasn't a radical leftist. He was very condemnatory by the, the time the general election rolled around of the Black Lives Matter protests. He said we needed to fund the cops more. He's building Trump's border wall. He's done a lot of things, whether or not he should have done so, because it has, doesn't actually earn him any support from the right, but he's done a lot of things to be reaching across the aisle. He was supposed to be the, concili the conciliatory um, bridge-building candidate. That was his claim to fame. And she says that the, the framing he's doing now, which is more MAGA-bad, is frankly distasteful to her, even though mm. uh, clearly she's a very much a critic of MAGA, MAGA, because it doesn't feel like that inclusive, positive, more forward-looking strategy that he had back then. And You're if you have a critic like Sunny Hoffman yeah. on The View saying something like that, Maybe there's a there That's there. That's a good point. There was a, a lot of the 2020 campaign f for him was about, um, we're all so exhausted. It was the go back to normal. I mean, COVID yeah. was part of that. Yeah. There had obviously been a lot of protesting and disruption and rioting and, and, and there was a, there was, and we had to hear so much from Trump, you know, the daily press conferences, the, there was a, there was an exhaustion, I think, in the country that was just like, can we go back to a simpler time, a better time, even of like two years ago? Um, and you didn't hear a lot from Joe Biden, but he was manifesting that let's just have things be regular again. And it seems like voters don't feel like they got that. And the choice before them is we're going to be exhausted no matter what because our yeah. lives are just exhausting and we still have a lot of problems. So maybe he can't run that campaign again. But I, I don't know that— um, Ringing that, the uh, press isn't going to do it. Haranguing the press to say Trump is a racist more often. I mean, there's it's no ridiculous. more guaranteed fail strategy than that. Don't, and let's not forget the Hillary Clinton, the Podesta email— um, emails exposed how much there were was a literal list of friendly journalists that they went to time and time again that generated exactly the kind of coverage that she wanted. And again, it wasn't just about anti-Trump coverage. It was also about rigging the Democratic primary and framing Bernie Sanders in a very particular light, which also backfired and created a cohort of the formerly democratically aligned coalition that is frankly saying in the wake of especially the conduct in Gaza, no more, I'm never going to vote for a, a Democrat again. This is what they have sowed. And if he wants to control the discourse, he should consider what it would have meant to have a real primary where he had the nation's focus on him on a debate stage, actually defending what he's done for the past three years and articulating his vision for the next four. Amen to that. More Rising right after this. Attention passengers, if you look to your right, you'll see beautiful views of Portland, Oregon. And if you look to your left, you'll see a massive hole in the side of the plane. Alaska Airlines Flight 1282 was forced to make an emergency landing after a portion of the fuselage exploded last Friday, leaving a huge chunk of the plane missing. Here's that shocking video.
But new information coming to light reveals Alaska Airlines was aware of the issue with the plane and continued to fly it anyway and are putting the company in some hot water. The Associated Press reports warning lights were triggered on three flights, including each of the two days before the brand new Boeing 737 MAX 9 suffered a terrifying fuselage blowout on Friday night. Jennifer Homendy, chair of the National Transportation Safety Board, said maintenance crews checked the plane and cleared it to fly, but the airline decided not to use it for the long route to Hawaii over water so that it could return very quickly to an airport if the warning light reappeared. Following an investigation by United Airlines into its fleet of 737 MAX 9 jets, the airline determined it had found a number of loose bolts that could have caused parts of the plane to rip off. The FAA has grounded several of the aircraft operated in the country, both by American and foreign airlines. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg had little to say, simply tweeting, safety will always be the top priority for our department and for the FAA. Administrator Whitaker has acted to order these aircraft grounded, pending the inspections necessary to ensure that they are safe to operate. You know what happened to this plane? I know. Desmond forgot to enter 48, 15, 16, 23, 42 on the computer in the hatch. And you don't know what that references it's to? It's a lost but thing. people watching. Okay. <laughs> all right. Now, there, a lot of people have been attributing blame all over the place. First, we should note that in some kind of a miracle, apparently the two people who were supposed to be sitting in the seats right next to the portion of the plane that had blown off missed their flight, weren't on the flight. I, That's I, also some lost kind of thing there. Final okay. Destination yeah, is the movie right. that people yeah. were alluding to that, you know, there but by the grace of God. Although it's Jacob not clear if you, were if you had your seatbelt buckled, whether or not. I got to say, I always have my seatbelt buckled because I'm always afraid of one of these eventualities. I'm not going to be sucked out into the <laughs> vacuum of space. It's buckled. It's I'm locked in. If the plane survives, I'm surviving too. I think Jacob warned them. Um, but there have also been people, uh, David uh, Sirota at The Lever uh, wrote a really interesting rundown of some of these long-standing systemic and regulatory issues, problems that have been going on with the airlines. Remember, this is not Pete Buttigieg's first airline scandal. Last Christmas, Christmas, you know, before the most recent one, they, uh, we saw the, the largest single grounding of flights, I believe, in American history that largely got swept under the radar. But here's what the lever has to say about this. They say uh, they argue that the Federal uh, Aviation Administration has failed to properly regulate companies like Spirit, a budget airline, which was given $75 million in a public subsidy from Pete Buttigieg's Transportation Department in 2021, despite repeating uh, reporting more than $5 billion in revenues in 2022, and it builds itself as one of the largest manufacturers of aerostructures for these commercial planes. The FAA's chronic, systemic, and longtime funding grab is a key problem in having the staffing, resources, and travel budgets to provide proper oversight, said William McGee, a senior fellow for aviation and travel at the American Economic Liberties Project. And he went on to say that ultimately the FAA has failed to provide adequate policing of outsourced work. Um, and so they go on to report on the fact that so many of these um, companies make these small constituent parts and are not responsible for the whole, and that a lack of regulation on those parts and on the airline industry altogether and real funding cuts that are happening here, where these airlines are investing in stock buybacks, distributions to their shareholders, instead of investing in improvements to the machinery and to but staffing guess, but, in the company, are attributable to some of these problems that we've seen over the last few years. I guess, but I, there's no evidence that they've... It's undermined any safety. The last. Um, Did we not look at the same video of a plane with a, the si a hole in the side the of it? The last fatal plane. I just looked it up. I didn't know. The last 
plane fatality was in 2009. We haven't had a plane crash in All right. years. So how about you go ahead and book these 737 uh, flights and the rest of us can... It's the safest way to travel. That, but that's not the issue, Robbie. The uh, issue isn't whether it's the safest way to travel. It, I'm saying it, it hasn't gotten any less safe. It's whether... Robbie, if someone had been sitting on those seats unsecured, they could have died. So if, if your position is that it's not a big deal until someone literally dies and that we shouldn't address this problem until a plane is actually crashing into the ground and hundreds of lives are lost, then that's a position to take. I think most people who want to make sure that plane travel is as safe as it can be, not just I mean, safer than a car. people want to argue car. that there needs vast more regulation that make the industry's lives a greater headache and subjects them to more scrutiny and all of that, which will end up actually making plane travel even more exorbitantly expensive than it's no, becoming that's not than, true. It, than it will the, the be. The criticism that you here. Have to, let me finish. Would have to argue that there's been some actual decline in safety standards and there is no statistical decline. So the libertarian is saying there's no statistical decline in safety standards, so don't look at the hole on your side of the plane. Zero. A, a, the a argument, fatal accident rate of zero. You, you've been so clear. Stand, stand on that position. You're owning it. Until someone falls out the hole in the plane, don't look at this hole in the side of the plane. But for the rest of us, to be clear, the critique is that airlines are enormously profitable. And instead of investing in the updates to their scheduling and booking technology, which was the cause of all of the people, millions of people across the country who had their travel disrupted last Christmas, and is also the cause arguably of some of the technical failings in these planes that are causing these safety concerns. Um, the, the, the issue is not that there's not enough money. The issue is that the airlines are not investing in actually buying the best materials, buy, paying staff to do the uh, necessary oversight, because and investing in updating their I own technology. Get another word in, please. That instead that they are trying, they are choosing to disperse profits to their shareholders instead of ensuring your safety. So I oppose, obviously, giving any of the subsidies we've given to the airline industries. I said they were a bad idea at the time, so I wouldn't have done any of that. Um, the number one uh, reform that was inflicted on the industry was doubling the amount of hours pilots have to train in order to be licensed as pilots is twice as many hours as in Europe, uh, which makes it very difficult to hire the requisite staff to fly enough planes, and that is making everything more expensive and more inefficient. Again, there's been no safety tra trade-off because the planes are perfectly 100% safe, and I don't love regulation just for the sake of regulation, but I don't like corporate welfare either, so we'll agree on that aspect of Here's it. Here's just a little bit more reporting from the lever, because this is not just an isolated incident with these planes. Um, they go on to write, last week's high altitude debacle, which forced an Alaska Airlines 373 MAX 9's emergency landing in Portland, came just a few years after Spirit was named in an FAA action against Boeing. In 2019 and 2020, the agency alleged that Spirit delivered parts to Boeing that did not comply with safety standards, then proposed that Boeing accept the parts as delivered, and Boeing subsequently presented the parts as ready for airworthiness certification on hundreds of aircraft. So I think this isn't this investigation, this story isn't going anywhere anytime soon. It is enormously costly for these companies to have to ground planes. These are new planes, mind you, that they recently paid millions of dollars for that aren't in circulation because of these really real safety concerns, not to mention the people traveling that day certainly didn't get to their destination on time as they were forced to land prematurely to deal with a gaping hole in the side of the craft. I said what I said.
That does it for us for today. Tomorrow on Rising, it'll be a new day. We will be back. However, we are unfortunately so sadly losing a critical member of our staff, our wonderful executive producer, Gabriella Schulte. There's some photos of us together, including in our Halloween costumes in the left. Don't laugh at us. Um, she's leaving to pursue a wonderful opportunity. She has been indispensable to Rising's successes for as long as I've been here for the last two years. And um, we are we are just we are heartbroken to see her leave. Although we remain very good friends with her, and we expect to see her all the time. Um, if you're if you've been a longtime viewer of the show and have appreciated the content, she has more to do with it than anybody else. Truly. So please wish her well as we do so too. She's truly the best. You will be missed, Gabby, so 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 much. Come back tomorrow, though. We're going to soldier on we despite will. having lost such an important member of this team. Take care of yourselves. Bye bye.